Okay. okay. Welcome back after a long break to Pacific Legends. Unleashed. Um, no. <laughs> Is that what we're doing? I was going to go back to oh, you're something go a little bit more, yeah, a bit more macho, because this is a pretty macho topic. Yeah, it is a macho topic. We're starting the new year, 2024, with uh, some very macho legends, aren't we? Mm. Yeah, well, one of them at least. You're talking about me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm always the most macho are... of the podcast in Pacific Legends, aren't we? I think we might be the Pacific Legends. Yeah, I think that's what the title implies, isn't it? Yeah, because we're obviously talking about people who aren't from the Pacific, so we are the one constant. Well, this time we're talking about someone from the Pacific. After True that. straying away to Britain and Norway, mm. we've come back to New Zealand. Yep. We? Land of the Long White Cloud. A classic uh, New Zealand character, this one. Who are we doing this week? One Charles Hazlitt Upham. And most people may not have heard of him, especially if you're not from New Zealand, but what makes him such a Pacific legend? Well, I think the Germans probably remember him. Oh, yes. Why is that? He hated Nazis. Oh. Like with quite a fiery passion. Yes. He loved to shoot a gun in their general direction. Yes. Um, and he was pretty hell-bent on ending the war and Nazi tyranny as quickly as possible. So I assume we're talking about World War II here. Isn't World it? War II, yes. Oh, yeah, okay. yep. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's why I'm here. To you heard Nazis like, and you went... Simplify it for the listeners. World War II. Oh, I thought they might have been caught up on the Boer War or something. No. Uh, Charles Upham. Yep. So? Should we crack on? Should we unleash him? Let's take him off the leash. All right. Charles Hazlitt Upham yes. was born on the 21st of September, 1908. Oh, yes. So that's about the time that a 36-year-old, Roald Amundsen, was still planning his trip to the North Pole. Oh, nice tying back into the previous character. And obviously we've got to mention William Bly. He'd been dead for about 91 years. Is he related to William Bly? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I just needed to time in there somewhere. He's probably got some of his characteristics, though, doesn't he? There's a, yeah, there's a little bit of stubbornness. Starchy? <laughs> yeah, he's a little starchy. Yeah. They both ate potatoes. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, little Charles had three sisters, but he was the only son of Johnny and Agatha. Uh, yes. They both used to live in England before they... Well, they didn't anymore. Smart choice. They left. Smart choice. His dad actually went to Australia first, where he was actually caught up in a crazy scheme that involved him becoming the prime minister of a sovereign nation that would be formed when northern Queensland seceded from the rest of the state as well as the Commonwealth. What was their economy based on? Bananas? I have absolutely no idea. Bananas and cane Crocodile skin. Yeah, he thought the whole thing was a little bit weird, so he ended up jumping the ditch and he ended up settling in... New Zealand. Yeah, Littleton in New Zealand. Oh, little town. So, little port town to the south of Christchurch. Okay. And there he met Agatha. Oh, she sounds awesome. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me, truck? Just a septic truck just going outside the Pacific Legends studio. I'll have to unleash the sewage from, <laughs> from should, the school. They should hook their pipe up to your mouth, mate. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of crap coming out. <laughs> right, let's not get sidetracked. All right. <clears throat> Anyway, in Littleton, <laughs> he met Agatha. Yes. With whom he made sweet, sweet love. Oh, that's unleashed. <laughs> At least four times. That is, that yeah. is unleashed. Well, someone, someone made love with we her four times a, anyway. We better put an ex- explicit content tag on this one. Yeah. For that kind of chat. Yep, that's unleashed. Anyway, Charles was apparently quiet and shy, but very courteous as a child. Courteous? What does that mean? Courteous? Yeah, that's probably right. I'll say it that way. Uh, He never caused his nanny, Ethel, any problems. In fact, at the age of five, he insisted that he walk on the outside of Ethel when they walked to the park. Oh, wow. So, little gentleman, you could view that a bit of a card-carrying member of the patriarchy from a young age. Yeah. His heart was in the right place, though. Was it? Who knows? As he grew, he didn't develop into a strong child. He didn't? No. Oh. Weak little dude. In oh. fact, his parents were often concerned about his health. He was a bit frail, and he began to develop a limp, and they took him to the doctors, and the doctor said, well, he's limping because one leg is shorter than the other. Reminds me of you, mate. It was brilliant medical diagnosis, yeah. first of all. <laughs> he's got a ruler, what a doctor. He's got a ruler out, did he? Yeah. Anyway, when he was nine, Charles was sent off to boarding school in Timaru, oh. where he did almost nothing to distinguish himself academically, athletically, he just sort of coasted through. And if you can't distinguish yourself in Timaru, in Timaru where yeah. can you? Yeah, well, the future didn't look that bright at this point. 
He did develop a habit of annoying his teachers by constantly questioning them, and he would just never quite accept any answer that they gave him. It was never enough. He'd always come back with something else. He's like, well, have you thought about... You would fit right in in my classroom. Yeah. So he got beaten up a fair bit by the faculty. The, the teachers. Fair enough, yeah. The Timaru teachers. Yeah, they just had a crack at him. Yeah, nice. Because he wound them up a bit. Um, but other than that, he just sort of existed. Yeah. So in his book, Mark of the Lion. Oh, huge. Which is sort of the definitive book about Charles Upham. Big time. The author, successful lawyer... Unsuccessful novelist, but kind of successful biographer of Charles Upham, Kenneth Sanford writes, He was not regarded as a scholar of any note. His successes were those of the determined plodder. Oh, he's determined, though. I love a plod. Yeah, determined is good. He continued to fly under the radar at Christ College, which he attended from the age of 15. Oh, Christ College. Yep, fancy pants. Yes. So his teachers and peers knew him as reliable and intensely trustworthy. If he said he was going to do something, he did it. His word was his bond. Yeah. And although he was usually pretty calm, there was evidence of a bit of a fire burning in, in there somewhere, which would burn brighter whenever little Charlie observed injustice or wrongdoing. Yeah. He believed there was a, a special place in hell reserved for bullies like you. Like and me? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I don't want to get into it now, but yeah. I <laughs> just want to say something. I feel like you've got something you want to get off your chest. No, no. Okay. But he also particularly hated racists. Mm. It was just that brand of injustice, especially when there was one bigger guy picking on a little guy, especially if it was about something that they couldn't control, yeah. you know, like race, that he just could not handle could that. Not stand. He hated injustice as much as Bly hated thieves. Oh, that's And hard. Scott hated... Winning. Yeah, being competent. Yeah. Or making, like, reasonable decisions. Let's tell you what. Yeah. That's a lot of hate. And as I'm much not- as he hated getting to the South Pole first... <laughs> I imagine there was a fair bit of injustice going on at Christ College. Yeah. Just for those international listeners out there. Yeah. Christ College is like the Hogwarts of New Zealand, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, lots of magic, big spiders. And I was more talking about like the buildings, but... Right. Okay. Yeah, it is pretty fancy. Yeah. And it's kind of where you send your kid if you... Don't like them. If you want a little bit of status, you get to say, I, son- I sent my son to Christ College. Yeah. Don't yeah, you? and that's the kind of family that Charlie grew up in because his... His dad was a really well-respected lawyer, yeah. and his mum was just an elegant, you know, lady who was well-respected, and yeah. so he grew she, up in pretty comfortable circumstances. Her ancestors were on the first the four first ships. Four. Yeah, that's what they say in Christchurch. My ancestors were on the first four ships. Yeah, so Edward I'm more important than you, Edward Given Wakefield, who you know was a big coloniser. Oh yeah, big fan. Set up you know that scheme to bring people over to Canterbury and set up Christchurch, and yeah, she was one of those first mm. settlers in Christchurch. There you go. After disappointing his father, he told him that farming rules, law (laughs) drools, he didn't want to be a lawyer, much to his dad's disappointment. Charles enrolled at Canterbury Agricultural College. Oh. CAC. Yeah. Some people probably call it, where he learned how to farm, and he loved it. I like that. So he was never great in school. That kind of dull academic environment never really appealed to him, but he would froth all over any field that needed to be ploughed. Oh, yeah. Loved a good plough. Yeah. For two years, he was first in agriculture, and he also earned firsts in economics and vet science, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. possibly planning for his life as a vet after the war. Ah. Did he know there was going to be a war? Hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Good planning ahead Maybe it moment. just worked out well yeah. when he became a vet. Yeah. Anyway, his results there proved that he had a sharp kind of brain, and, and he could do things if he applied himself. He just yeah. had to care about it. Mm. So he took a liking to the land and being out in the wild, and the South Island of New Zealand can be a pretty rugged place. Oh, yes. So he became pretty rugged. And in this environment where he felt more free, he became more outgoing as well. He became well-known for telling a good yarn. He was just a bit more gregarious. He had a dry, practical sense of humour, and he hated all the trappings of modernity. He he thought that modern life was just a bit of a sham. Smartphones and stuff? Probably. I don't think he'd be that keen on social media. Yeah. Um, yeah, anything that he thought didn't directly contribute to a good, honest life of satisfaction he thought was a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, nice. He loved animals, especially horses. Oh, yeah. He was well known to be able to break in any horse, okay. which seems like a bit of a cliche. Yeah. How many movies have you seen where... Kevin Costner. Yeah, some urban girl from the city comes out to the farm. Oh, yeah. Because her stepdad owns a ranch. Is that Coyote Ugly? 
I don't believe I've seen Cody Ugly. Oh, is that the plot? No, don't they more, dance on no, a bar? That's, that's more about bartending girls. Yeah, but this girl, she sees this rugged guy out there. Sweet home Alabama. He's moving in slow motion. He's just drenched in sweat. Oh. And the way he's looking at the horse, like he's not just seeing the horse, he's, he's talking to it. Is this Yellowstone? It's a bit of everything, isn't it? Oh, okay. And she falls in love with him. And, oh. You know, and eventually there's some sort of bad fire and the beams are falling and he saves her life. Inferno. Yeah. Are we still talking about a movie or? Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Charles Huffman could break horses. Oh, yeah, nice. So he loved animals. Yeah. Um, he worked for the next six years, basically. He matured. He became increasingly rough and hardened. Yes living in the hills and plains of Canterbury, with four of those years being spent up in the high country, which even a great outdoorsman like yourself yes. must admit that some pretty dip- difficult conditions uh, at times. Winter in the high country is freezing. Summer too, hot, windy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of those things. He lived in a tiny little musterer's hut for most of the time that he was out there, and so there's not much to those huts. They're pretty flimsy oh, walls yeah, and there's no insulation. That's and for floors. Sure. Yeah. No, that's that's for sure. So one clear night, he's up there in the high country. Charlie goes for a walk to the long drop. And in the absence of nice sort of the hypoallergenic scented rolls that you have in your toilet, yeah. he ripped a sheet of toilet paper off the wall. They've been sort of nailed there in thick clumps. Yeah. And as he was doing his business, in the glow of his little hurricane lamp, one headline caught his eye. From September 16th, 1935, the headline read, Nuremberg Laws Passed. Germany bans marriage to Jews. So Oh, he wouldn't have, No. He wouldn't have liked that. Charlie flies into a range. That sort of bigotry pressed his buttons. In the long drop. He's in the long he's drop. He's yeah. punching the walls in the long drop. Yeah, bit Walks of a rage up. poo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. So that pressed his buttons and he already, you know, he'd been keeping up with the news and he already knew very clearly how he felt about what was developing over there. So living on in the wilderness, occasionally returning home, hair and clothes in an absolute state because he didn't care about he any of that. He must have been such a mountain man. He was, yeah. yeah. Around that time, his family and friends, they realised that he just didn't care about the comforts and you know those things that people wanted every single day that they needed in their life. He just didn't care for them. Um, Sanford writes that at that time, he accepted difficulties as part of normal life, as things one had to surmount. He surmounted them with a total disregard of considerations that deterred other men, such as wet clothes, lack of sleep, tiredness, or shortage of food. They were secondary considerations. The objective came first. So whatever he was doing, whatever his objective was, everything else was just a minor thing that he would barely notice a lot of the time. So focused, eh? Yeah. He didn't really love the social game. No. Found that a bit unpleasant. But his love for horses drew him along to the races one Saturday in 1935. Oh. And there he met Molly McTamney. Oh, mate. They had a dance. Yeah. Apparently he didn't argue with her too much, and that was that. <laughs> the first person he didn't argue with. Yeah, because he loved to get into it. So he'd pick her up for dates in his car, and he had a canvas hood on his car that would blow back as soon as they sort of got up to any kind of speed. And nice. even if it was pouring down with rain, it didn't deter either of them. They'd just chuck a jacket on. Is this the early convertible? I guess so, Yeah. And as their relationship continued to develop, and even though you know Charles' clothes were dirty and full of holes, he began thinking, and Molly might have had a little bit of input here, yes. about securing a, a future, you know, something stable with a bit of room for growth. Yeah. So in March of 1937, he joined the valuation department. Oh, that was the way to go, eh? Yeah. Valuing land. They, they valued land. Yeah. That's what he did. So he got out there and valued all of the land that he used to be living rough on. And like I said, that was a pretty stable career and there was room for growth. And he'd work alone a lot of the time. Um, I'm pretty sure my granddad was a land valuer for a while. Go on. Lots of uh, driving around. Yeah. Like you're always away. Yeah. Because you're out there just on the road. Yeah. Looking at land. Yeah. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. Yeah. And then he got sick of it and bought a farm. Yeah. Okay. Much like Charles Upham. Yeah. So, like yeah, lots of traveling. And sometimes Charles would travel with other people. And when he did, to save money, he'd always book like the cheapest accommodation possible yes. with one bed. And so whoever he was traveling with, his colleague, they'd get the bed and Charlie would just sleep on the floor. Ah, yeah. And he apparently wouldn't even notice that it was unusual or uncomfortable. Yeah. He's just like, no, that's good. See, that's an awesome skill to have. Oh, if you've got that, yeah. then you just don't have... Imagine how much money you'd save. Dude, that too. for a start. 
But all the things that people complain about, the little hardships in life, yeah. if you're just immune to all of that, yeah. how good? Yeah, it definitely made war easier. Yeah. So in 1938, Charles pops the question. Oh, which question? Will you Will you marry me? Oh, that one, yeah, yeah. I don't know how he said it. It was probably a bit more gruff than that. Like, yeah. I'm going to get married. It was wearing like his shirt with heaps of holes in it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, they got super engaged, Charlie and Molly. Super but only engaged. Yeah, really engaged. Oh, okay. Yeah, but only for a few months. She went off to see her sister in Singapore, then went off to England at the beginning of 1939. And if you're a history junkie... Big time. You know, if you're massively into your history... Oh, yeah, you love history. 1939 probably rings a bell. It was a good year for the uh, stock market, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, 1930s, 19- not great. Oh, okay. Um, what else happened in 1939? The clouds over Europe were darkening. Oh, was there a storm? Metaphorically. Weather. Bad weather. <laughs> yeah, that was the biggest problem. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, I remember that. So the earth-shattering thunderstorm of World War II is, is pretty close to breaking. Oh, yeah, that's right. So at this point, Charlie's 31. He's rugged. He's a hardened man. Perfect age for a soldier. He knows how to survive on very little. He's driven by that fierce determination. The objective comes first, and he hates injustice and wrongdoing. Oh, great characteristics. He was described by an acquaintance at the time as... An experienced, educated, well-bred, rough diamond. Rough diamond. So that Christ College stuff, you know, well-bred. Yeah. He did have that education, like the classical one that he didn't really listen to, but then that practical one about how to get stuff done. Yeah, nice. So he observed the events in Europe, and his moral compass was just going off. He knew exactly how he felt about Nazi Germany. And when the first call for volunteers went out in September of 1939, he immediately chucked his name on the list. Yes, sign me up. Yeah. He would later state, though, that it was something that he felt just had to be done. He didn't even consider it because all the rest of the things in his life, his career or his marriage to Molly, he felt like none of that could be assured unless he went over and shot Hitler in the face and ended that whole thing. Yeah. So it had to be done before life could resume. He's got a goal. Yeah. So Charles took his first steps towards stopping that Nazi menace by marching into Burnham Camp where he found himself part of A Company. He was a private with the first draft of New Zealand's first echelon. And lots of people who have been in combat speak about how unpredictable it is in terms of the effect it has on people. Yes. You can have, you know, this hardened guy who swears he's, you know, tough as nails and wins every fight he's ever been in and when the bullets start flying, you know, disappears into the dust and tries to dig a hole for himself. Yeah. And conversely, you can have a mild-mannered bookworm who avoids conflict in his daily life who just you know, is turns into John Rambo yeah. when the bullets start flying. So for that reason, because of that unpredictability, the principal of Lincoln College, which is where Charlie went to school, never wrote recommendations to the military for any of his students throughout the entire war. Because you just don't know. You just don't know. So to recommend somebody and say, this person's going to be a good soldier is just an absolute crapshoot. Yeah. Except for that one time in October of 1939 when he wrote to recommend Charles Upham the only student he ever recommended. He Ah. wrote, Dear Sir, a young man by the name of Upham has left the college to join your unit. I commend him to your notice, as, unless I am greatly mistaken, he should be an outstanding soldier. So something had been seen there. Yeah. You know, the qualities... The way he ploughed the field. Yeah, exactly. You could tell. He'd plough through those Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) And the chain of command's apparently a pretty big thing in the military. Oh, they love it. I've heard about that. They love it. Hierarchy. Yes, sir, and all that. Yep, salute. So from this newly formed group of soldiers who turned up um, to camp, all of them were volunteers. Yes. And not many of them had much experience, relevant experience. The bigwigs had to pick some of them to become non-commissioned officers. Oh. So two of those bigwigs, we've got Captain Frank Davis and then a guy we'll sort of mention throughout the story, Colonel Kippenberger. Oh, yeah. They were having a look at the cards of all the soldiers that were in camp, sort of trying to figure out who would be good and who would not be for this. They like... Command position. Basketball cards with stats and stuff. I think so, yeah. Holographic. From the roof, Charles Upham. Aggression. (laughs) (laughs) Dribbling. (laughs) Moral compass. Ten. Planting turnips. One (laughs) hundred. Anyway, there's a knock at the door. So they're looking at those info sheets. Knock at the door. Excuse me. Some no-name private was apparently requesting special leave. And this was immediately after all of the men had just been told, no one's leaving. 
But no leave will be granted. The arrogance of it. Can I have some leave? (laughs) So he's brought into the room and he requests personal leave. Yes. And they say, what for? He's like, no, rather not go into it. They press him for details. And he apparently told Kippenberger, and this is a quote from Kippenberger, who's remembering back. Upham walks in and says, I want to give a man a hiding, that's all. Grant him leave. Just wants to go and beat some guy. Well, they did. They're like, yeah, off you go then. He'd apparently sold a guy a car and the guy was now refusing to pay. So he told this story to <laughs> Kippenberger. He's like, so I know where he is. He's at this hotel. I need to go and sort him out. Yeah, nice. If he's not going to pay with money, he's going to pay with flesh. <laughs> so Kippenberger, Kippenberger and his other mate Davis, they apparently crack up. They're like, yeah, righto, righto, off you go. Righto, here's my knuckle duster. Yeah. But Kippenberger also knew Charles' dad, knew Johnny Upham, uh, yep. knew that he was a well-respected guy. Yeah. And looking at the card, they're like, righto, he went to Christ College, so he's from a well-connected family. School, 10. School, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was so enamoured, Kippenberger, by Charlie just walking in and being honest and yeah. all of that, that he said, when you get back from beating this guy up, report directly to me. So Charlie did that, and he continued to be pretty visible on the training ground. Because, oh, so hold up. Did, did he beat the guy up? Yeah, he went on. <laughs> yeah, he reports back, and Kippenberger goes, did you get the money? And Charlie goes, no. And he goes, well, I think he said, did you extract a pound of flesh? And apparently <laughs> Charles Upham smiled. There was a twinkle in his, his bright blue eyes, and he just said, yes, I did, sir. Um, Kippenberger would be loving that. Yeah, he was loving it. Yeah. He, he really liked the cut of Charles Upham's gym. I like gym. the cut of your gym, mate. Yeah. So Charlie threw himself into his training um, from Stanford, Stanford's book. The quote is ferocious intensity oh. to describe the way that he approached everything yeah, he did there. nice quote. He gets promoted to Lance Corporal, so he's got command over a small handful of men, and his only goal for himself and for his men is to just make them the best soldiers they can possibly be. Awesome goal. So he's pretty gruff. Like he's just short with everybody, yeah. but his only goal is to make them as good as they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanford includes a story about Upham in his book that captures the way he approached this time in the training camp. So here's Kippenberger asking questions to um, Davis again. Kippenberger asks, Did you hear about him at Tai Tapu? Referring to manoeuvres from which the battalion had just returned. Held up the whole advance half an hour. I was chewing him up, but then I found out the reason. He'd been scouting out on his own. He came upon an enemy section, rushed in on them, demanded they surrender. Trouble was, they wouldn't surrender. Reckon the battle hadn't started. Upham was late getting back because he'd stayed to argue with them. (laughs) Davis nodded. And I heard more about that today. The stream was running four or five feet deep, and the enemy reckoned it would be all right to post men only on the bridges. But I'm told Upham took it more seriously. He didn't have a go at the bridges, said that was crazy. He made his men wade the stream up to their armpits, won his battle, but didn't make him too popular. They complained that he was a bit too realistic. (laughs) <laughs> Kippenberger listened with interest. Yes, and Archie McDuff told me he did a camouflage job that was pretty good. He sat silently for a little while. Then he continued, A determined man. Probably get himself shot the first day we're in action. So I love that he's taken it as seriously as possible. Yeah. Him and his men are full-on camo gear, face paint, stalking up the stream. It's basically like when you go to a barbecue and your friends are playing a game of backyard cricket and yeah. it's like a... A seven-year-old's batting, yeah. you steam in and bowl a 140k beamer at the yeah. end, kind of thing. Yeah, that's what Charles Upham's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You take your granny out. Yeah. <laughs> with a bouncer first ball. Yeah. So after two and a half months, give or take, um, on the fourth of December, word spreads through the camp: a small advance party, only 52 men from the whole nation, handpicked from all of the training camps around New Zealand, would have prepared to ship out. Oh. Guess whose name was on the list? Charles Upham. Charles Upham. So he's promoted to sergeant. Six days later, he finds himself on a ship bound for Egypt. So, so now that he's sergeant, is he controlling more men? Yeah. 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 So he's off, you know, a million miles away from the rolling plains of Canterbury. Yeah. But I guess he's a million miles closer to shooting Hitler in the face. Yeah, he'll be happy about that. Yeah. So he gets to Egypt and he spends most of his time training to be a better soldier, just like he was before, the best he could be while also becoming really good at speaking to his superior officers in a way that would get pretty much anyone else, you know, stood down, court-martialed, yeah. or, or, you know. He just gets away with it. Yeah, he gets away with it. He just sort of, he completely disregarded rank and just spoke to everybody, assuming that they had the same objectives as him. Yeah. Like, we want to be the best soldiers, we want to use our weapons the best way, we want to win the war as well and as quickly as possible. Uh-huh. 
And, you know, the real world often doesn't work that way. And I think the kind of laborious, slow-moving machinations of the military and yeah. chain of command and all of that just really bugged him Yeah, because he just wanted to get into the thick of it. So he'd question the orders and processes of those around him and he'd support those who he led, you know, as sergeant now, and he taught them how to do things that he thought was best. One time when he was out during desert training manoeuvres, Upham arranged his men to establish a defensive position. They're up on a hill and a supervising officer rocks up and, you know, tut-tuts and then points around. He's like, look, you need to move those guys up here a bit further. Those guys need to move over. Um, And Charlie just told that officer that his ideas were, direct quote, bloody stupid. (laughs) So the officer upgrades his ideas to orders. He's like, I'm ordering you to do this. Upham still refuses to shift his men. He's just like, I'm responsible for their safety, not you. I'm not moving them. The officer threatens him with arrest, and Charles just goes, look, if you arrest me, I have the right to be escorted by two NCOs of equal rank, and looking around, I can't see anyone of equal rank here, so good luck with that. Nice. You know, but the guy let him off because Charlie just sort of got away with it. He never meant offence. He just... He just knew better. Yeah, he just knew better. So that's how he rolls. He kind of reminds me of, we've talked about that Amazon Prime show, Reacher. Yes. You know, Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. In that, that version of Jack Reacher, not the Tom Cruise version. Yeah. He would just be given orders or suggestions from somebody and he just looks at them and he's like, these no. Are, these are dumb. He just goes, no, and then walks off and does whatever he thinks is best. Yeah. So he remained rough and scruffy in Egypt. He was apparently awful on the parade ground. Nice. He just could not lead his men in a march. Timing was all out. I like that. He just didn't think any of that was important. He didn't think it would help them end the war. He said, war is fighting. Why bother with anything that doesn't help you to fight? Let's concentrate on things we'll have to do when we're in action. And he was once being observed by Kippenberger again, and he put in a typically disastrous performance. <laughs> the Kipster, after, yes. his, um, after the review, told him he'd ordered his men to halt on the wrong foot. And Upham's response, he got a bit flustered and he goes, well, sir, even if I did, they knew what I bloody well meant. (laughs) So Sanford describes the conversation between Kippenberger and another officer as they walk back to headquarters. Kippenberger asks, does he often swear like that? The other guy responds, most of the time, I'm told, just a habit. Educated fellow, of course, good family, Christ College. There we go. Christ College again. Must have picked up all his profanity when he was mustering. Now it just pours out of him naturally. (laughs) Funny thing, though, it's not offensive. He's even sworn at me. Anyone else I'd have on the mat. But with Upham, you know, he doesn't mean anything by it. Yeah. Kippenberger says, what about his men? Does he swear at them too? And the response is, they tell me he'll swear at anybody, no matter who. I expect his men swear back at him, but they're all for him. He looks after them so well. A real fighter for his own platoon. So all that roughness, Yeah. you know, kind of channeled all of that just into caring for his men and just being the best. Nice. So 10th of June, 1940, Mussolini declares war on Britain. And that just increased Upham's hankering to get out there and fight. He wanted to kill the bad guys. The Italians are in there. Yep. So he channeled all that frustration into his training, spending all his energy becoming an expert with the Bren gun. And he practiced with grenades all the time. He loved a grenade, didn't he? Loved a grenade. He'd often carry as many as he could into combat. Yeah. So in August, Upham went to OCTU. That's the Officer Cadet Training Unit at the recommendation of Kippenberger. And there, Charlie mastered map reading and desert navigation and street fighting and military law and all the stuff that he needed to know. Everything the Allied forces knew from their experience in World War I, and it was all taught by guys who really knew their stuff. Yes. But unsurprisingly, he disagreed with a lot of their ideas. Well, I guess World War I was like 30 years ago, right? Yeah, and I mean, that was kind of his point was, and apparently he told one of his commandants that his ideas were obsolete. Yeah. He's like, I don't like this. It's obsolete. The world's changed too much. We've got fast-moving tanks. We've got aircraft playing a major role. Bigger guns. Yeah, this is... What are you doing, mate? <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's like, you're just going to march there and turn left there and yeah. salute there. And- yeah. So that commandant that he told, you know, his methods and lessons were obsolete, he was responsible for grading. Yeah. So Charlie Upham finds his name at the bottom of the list of graduates. So right. he gets out of OCTU, but his performance is pretty dire. And Kippenberger had sent some of his best NCOs to OCTU and he knew that it wasn't normal practice to get the men back to their original platoon, Yeah, their original company. They were assigned wherever they were going to be best needed, most yeah. valuable. Kippenberger looks at the list though and he sees Upham's name at the bottom and he says to the military secretary, he's like, can I please have that guy at least? Just give me the one at the bottom. The bottom guy. Yeah, and military secretary looks at it and he's like, oh yeah, you can have him. 
No like, one. No one wants that. No guy. one wants that guy. No one wants that guy. who's going to go on and win two VCs. So Charlie was taken back. Kiffenberger assigned him to take command of C Company, and he'd been warned about C Company. They were a rough bunch. Oh yeah, mostly from the west coast of the South Island. Yeah, um, Greymouth. Yeah, hard men. Hokitika. Yeah, miners. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, they were the kind of guys who would only really respect one of their own. Nice. And he won them over without too much trouble. And as he got to know his men better, he figured out what they needed, you know, what the strengths and weaknesses were, and he did everything that he could to help them succeed. He just devoted himself to him and them being the best. Yeah. Just talking about Egypt, Mm. have you seen those photos of all the soldiers sitting on the pyramids? Yeah. It must have been amazing as a soldier coming from New Zealand, you know. Yeah. You're 20 or you're 30 years old. You've never been probably outside of Canterbury. Yeah. Suddenly you're on the other side of the world staring at pyramids. Which is would only have been something you'd hear about. There's camels going past. Yeah. You know, like it must have been outrageous. No TV, no internet. And often that was part of the attraction though, wasn't it? Mm. Like, we'll sign up because this is one big adventure. We'll see the world. Yeah. Save we'll the see, world. We'll see the world and we get a free uniform. Yeah, totally. And the chicks will be into it. And here they are yeah, in the middle of a desert. Yeah. But this is kind of downtime before the big dance kicks off. Cool. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Take it away. Okay, so the action's about to start for Charles Upham and the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, as they were known. He's champing at the bit. Yeah, he's, he's pumped for some action. He's had enough of the parade drills. He's yeah. had enough of Egypt. Yeah. So Mussolini and the Italians, let's just say when they joined the war, it was pretty unimpressive. They got routed in North Africa in 1940, so then they moved to Greece, mm-hmm. and the Italians invaded. But they found themselves counterattacked so so much that 7,000 uh, Italians were taken prisoners. So Hitler basically had to take over because the Italians were doing such a bad job. Yep. And what happened is the UK realised that Greece was not going to be able to defend itself against Hitler and the well-trained German troops. And Churchill basically thought... If we let Greece fall, this is really bad for public opinion, right? We yeah. can't let this small independent nation just get taken over without assistance. It's not that surprising that Greece falls. I mean, you look what happened to France. Yeah, like, yeah. just steamrolled. Absolutely steamed. And they had a bit of experience with that sort of thing. Yeah, so, so Greece had no chance. The military option should have convinced the Allies that an expedition to Greece could only be an honourable, possibly disastrous gesture. So basically, they knew. Yeah, what a thing to be sent over. Like, you, it's not going to work. You know, go over there, definitely <laughs> shoot a few guns, throw a few grenades. You're going to lose. But basically, off you go. Hop on. Churchill was like, okay, well, this is a lost cause. Why the bulldog. Send, why don't we send in the Kiwis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gives his mate, Prime Minister Fraser, a bit of a telegram and says, look, you know that expeditionary force you've been training up in Egypt? Yeah. I've got the perfect mission for them. <laughs> it's like Operation Get Behind the Darkies from the South Park movie. <laughs> when they send... Yeah, it's like, you know, you've been t- checking out those cool pyramids? Why don't you go check out the cool ruins in uh, Athens? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, off they go. And really, you know, militarily, they should, should never have gone. It was, it was a lost cause. Mm. But March 1941, the New, Ze- New Zealand division was shipped across the Mediterranean and moved up into the Greek mainland. And they took up defensive positions near this place called Katerini, which is 300 miles north of the uh, of Athens. William Bly ever go there? No, he, he wasn't ever there. Okay. No, wasn't interested in that. No. Charles Upham's platoon found himself in this little little hamlet. It was called Rear Care. And they stayed there for 17 days. And one thing Charles Upham was really good at was digging in. And what I mean by that is making, like, defensive positions. He was mm. – one of the things he prided himself in was, like, the preparation, getting ready, yeah. digging your trenches, putting your camouflage on, all those things. You know, he'd taken all of it really, really seriously. That's like when he refused to move his men. Like in that part of the book, Sanford talks about how he just had a natural eye for the land and yeah. he could see where the weak points were and he'd always just fortify them. Yeah. So he's done that. Um, and everyone is commenting, man, Upham, he's got his, he's got his troops so well protected. It's we amazing. love you, Charlie. Unfortunately for Upham... Just as he gets to start the war, the thing he's been excited about for a long time, mm. he gets dysentery. Bugger. So, you know, he's got liquid coming out both he ends. He needs a big septic truck. That's not, that's not what you want no. at the start of the war. So basically he can't hold down any food. And no. I don't know if you know much about dysentery. 
It's pretty bad. Oh, yeah? Have you heard of a guy called Joseph Smith? Yes. Mormon prophet? Yes. Dysentery killed dum, him. Dum, 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 dum. And if dysentery can kill a Mormon prophet, then yeah. hey, it can kill anyone. Yeah, he had the protection of an archangel and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually in Nepal once with a group of students, and one of them got dysentery. Mm. And she, like, couldn't hold anything down, even like a sip of water straight away, straight back up again. I feel like you should definitely name her. I'm not going to name her, but we, <laughs> we went... After a couple of days of not being able to eat or drink, took her to hospital. Yeah. She was in there for a few days, and they put, like, 11 bags of saline into her. Yeah, right. She was that dehydrated. So yeah. dysentery, it's no joke. No. That's what I'm trying to – the point I'm trying to make. I and, think you've um, made that point. Here we go. Upham's got dysentery. And he couldn't walk. Like, he got to the point where he couldn't even walk. So they found him a donkey. <laughs> Being like a natural horse rider, yeah, and he rode around on his donkey whenever he needed to go to like division headquarters or section post. He'd be riding his donkey. Well, how good is that? How just good? like that prophecy, he was a determined plotter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but obviously his dysentery made him pretty impatient and pretty angry. So yeah. he was pretty fired up for it. Would you say he had the shits? <laughs> yeah, he would. Yeah, yeah, literally and uh, metaphorically. Mm. Anyway, Hitler's making kind of short work of. Uh, the top of Greece. He also whips through Yugoslavia. So he's coming at them from all directions. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the Nazis are coming down. And it's not, not long until um, they reach the Kiwis. The, the Greece forces aren't really putting up much of a fight. They weren't really that well trained or equipped. And they just didn't have the numbers to deal with the Germans' panzer tanks, etc., etc. Yeah, so who did? No one did, really, except for the Kiwis. Yeah. So Upham's platoon was posted an important crossroads. And there was just streams of refugees, you know, coming from the north. You forget about that. It's mm. like... The displacement. Yeah. There's all these people, citizens, civilians that are just having to move out. So he's, he's guarding the roads so that the refugees can, um, can come along. But you've also got to remember at the start of the war, the Kiwis hadn't seen any action. And they didn't really know how serious it was. And there was these... The planes were flying over. There was quite a lot of reconnaissance planes. So mm. they'd see a lot of German planes... But they'd fly over and they wouldn't drop any bombs. They wouldn't shoot or anything like that. So the Charles Upham and the Kiwis were pretty laid back. They weren't bothered to run for, you know, yeah. into hiding and things like that. Yep. And there's a story about how one German pilot flew so brazenly low over the defenders, he actually started waving at the Kiwis. And the Kiwis admired this, so they waved back. Sounds friendly. He he turned around, came back and strafed them all with the machine gun. <laughs> and suddenly uh, I think they realised that it was... You know, yeah. game time. Time to switch on. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting fact about Upham is often he wore no helmet. And the reason he didn't wear a helmet is he just couldn't find one that fitted. Yeah. <laughs> he must have had a massive head. So he'd wear like this little this little soft cap, the officer's soft cap, and it made him look like a bit of a a tourist that was just out on a jolly. Yeah. Everyone else is in full, you know, full <laughs> guess, and he's just walking around with his little cap on. Jandals on. Yeah. <laughs> So basically in Greece, the Germans attacked down every every line and whenever they ran into Kiwi defences, they suffered pretty heavy casualties because the Kiwis were well-trained, they'd been in Egypt for a while. The Greeks just couldn't deal with um, the tanks. So, you know, the Kiwis were in the middle, the, the Greeks were on the flanks. The Germans made their way through the Greeks and started to kind of flank the Kiwis and basically the New Zealanders had to retreat Although they were holding fast, you know, they were getting outflanked. The old pincer move. Yeah, classic. Poor old Charles Upham couldn't eat any food. And uh, there's this interesting yarn about how some of his men were, were down in the, the headquarters and the officers are like, why are you grabbing all these tins of condensed milk? And they said, you know, this is all that Charles Upham can stomach. It's the only thing that, that can keep him going. So he was just slurping away on condensed milk the Man. whole time he's on Greece. He can hardly walk. Seven-year-old me would have thought that sounded like paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so everyone's kind of written him off. It's like, well, you know, this guy can't even walk. He's riding a donkey. He's going to turn straight away. Yeah. Charles Upham has... Uh, other ideas. Has other ideas. <laughs> so basically, everyone understood we've got to abandon Greece. There's no way we can, you know, defend this with this many people. And it ended up being a little bit like Dunkirk. They had to get all of these men off Greece before the Germans got to them. So they all rushed down to the coast where the Navy boats started loading them up. You think they probably should have planned for that, like urgent evacuation yeah, cons- as they put the men in there? Considering they knew that uh, yeah. it wasn't really going to work. Yeah. And there was, you know, there's 2,500 New Zealanders were killed in Greece, 6,600 British people. So 
That's huge. It's a lot of people to die considering you kind of know you're going to lose the ground anyway. Yep. And then there was this 40,000 men that had to be rescued. And there wasn't enough time. So the Navy got there, but there wasn't enough time to take these men from Greece all the way back to Egypt and back to pick up more and so on and so on. So what they did is they picked them up and they just took them to this nearby island called Crete. Mm-hmm. And that gave them enough time to you know, load everyone up. So they, they dropped a bunch of them at Crete and said, OK, we're dropping you here. We're going to go back and pick up some more. But they weren't able to bring a lot of supplies for those men. Yep. They just said, yep, every, anything you can carry, jump on. Just get out of danger. Basically. Yep. And the, the rest of the men and some of the more experienced men ended up somehow getting to Egypt. So that's kind of like divided the forces. Upham ends up in Crete with a lot of the other Kiwi crew. And suddenly they're like, okay, so we've been left here. And, they, and the military intelligence starts hearing some things, you know. Crete's a strategic asset and the Germans intend to invade it at some yep. stage. So suddenly they're like, okay, we've just come from Greece. We've lost that. Now we've got to hold this little island and we've got none of the supplies we had. We don't have any support. And they hear that there's going to be this new tactic, which is paratroopers, right? Mm. There's going to be people dropped yep. from the sky with parachutes. So the Kiwis, they started preparing. They, they dug in under the olive trees. They swam at the beaches. And they waited. They waited for the inevitable, which was the German invasion. What a crazy contrast, hey, like being in Crete and relaxing and just spending time with mates, but knowing... Which is a lovely island in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Beautiful climate, beautiful beaches. But knowing what's coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Major General Freiburg, who was in charge of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, regarded the chance successfully defending Crete as, he's, as precarious. He was just like, hold up, so now you want me to defend this little island with no support? Mm-hmm. They're like, we need Navy, we need the Air Force. No, they need that- a guy who can expertly set up defensive positions. <laughs> Because at the moment, the Air Force on the island consisted of six hurricanes, six yep. planes, and there was also 17 obsolete ones sitting there. Oh, yeah, good. So they basically... Probably won't count those 17. So they had no <laughs> control of the skies. Just some men on the ground. They, they were devoid of any artillery. They had insufficient transport and ammunition. So he sent this message to, um, to Churchill saying, you need to either resupply us ASAP, you need to give us some support with the Navy, the Air Force, or we need to review this decision that we're going to try and defend Crete. Mm. Basically, give us stuff or we're out of here. Yeah. So Fraser, the Premier, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, cabled Churchill with this information, yeah. heard nothing back. Yeah, right. Classic move, eh? Oh, I mean, New Zealand. Missed you cool. <laughs> well, yeah, New Zealand off in the corner of the world, yeah. jumping up and down. Excuse me. <laughs> Caller ID, New Zealand calling. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah, straight to spam. Yeah. <laughs> so Wellington received no reply. So here they were, just abandoned on Crete. Yep. Hold this. Yeah. And the Germans started bombing. They bombing, bombed the uh, island just endlessly. And then, you know, on the 20th of May, 1941, the invasion came. The battle lasted nine days, but the, Ger- the Germans had won Crete after day one. Yep. It was pretty obvious that it was going to be lost. So the first kind of time that paratroopers had been dropped, the New Zealanders were looking up at the sky in amazement. Yeah, imagine seeing that. They were like revolutionary. They had no idea that this was a thing. Yeah. Suddenly there was uh, all these guys falling from the sky. Yeah. And to be honest, the New Zealanders kind of had a great time. Of, of those that fell close to the New Zealand uh, battalion... 136 were dropped, two survived. Wow. So, so there's all these guys coming from the sky. Yeah. The, the Kiwis just got their machine guns out and it was just, you know. Yeah. Shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess new tactics and that have to evolve a little. So here we are. Yeah. So it says in the book that um, Hitler never repeated this in World War II, hmm. dropping paratroopers on a well-defended kind of unit. Yeah. So obviously learned to lesson there. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people were killed, but a lot of people also made it to the ground safely. There was plenty of space where there wasn't, wasn't being defended, and a lot of Germans ended up on the ground. So suddenly the Germans have, have landed. Unfortunately, Upham's dysentery's got a lot worse oh, right. rather than getting better. So it's really carrying on. He's still battling. So now, now they've got Germans on the ground, Upham's like, we've got to defend this. We've got to make a move. Whose side was the Minotaur on? 
<laughs> Minotaur. Yeah. Fighting for the Allies or yeah, cause the that's, Nazis? Yeah, because that's in Creed, eh? Yeah. What are we talking? Is that Jason and the Argonauts? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's in there somewhere. Med- yeah. Medusa? Yeah, also relevant. <laughs> Zeus. <laughs> I really want to go to Crete, eh? Yeah, pretty awesome. Got the best history. So anyway, Upham decides we're going we're to make a move. We can't let the Germans kind of just establish themselves on this island. No. So they, they take off and they climb over a ridge and they see some parachutes lying on the ground and they realise, okay, there must be some Germans around. They're here. So Upham says, cover me. This is his favourite move. <laughs> tells, tells the lads to cover me and he gets on the ground and he just crawls around the side. So, the, so his boys are just covering him with like covering fire and Upham kind of flanks around and, and these, these boys say, you know, we heard this, we just, there was silence, we were covering and then we just hear this machine gun go off. And then silence, and then suddenly up him, up him appears again, and he says, "Oh, she's all right. She's all right, mate." <laughs> and they walk over there, and there's a bunch of dead, bunch of dead Germans. He's just committed multiple murders for the first time in his life. <laughs> up him comes back swinging a German helmet, <laughs> so casually, straight away he's into it. Yep. The Germans, however, are gaining a foothold, and especially they're starting to grab this airfield, this airfield on, on Crete called Malim. And it's a really important strategic move because if they capture the airfield, then rather than dropping paratroopers that can mm. be shot out of the sky, they can start landing their planes and you know people can get out safely and they can reinforce a lot easier. Presumably that's what they want Crete for, right? That is that its value? Is that it has a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's strategic because it's, it's kind of like halfway between Europe and kind yeah. of North Africa, which yeah. they want. They Save want a to, bit of fuel. If you... They want to hold the Mediterranean. Yep. So it was really important that there was a counterattack because they needed to take this airfield back before it got completely taken over. Mm-hmm. So the guys out on the field are saying, we must counterattack now before there's too many Germans here so we can hold on to this airfield. The orders go up and... The HQ say, no, nah, no, nah, we're not counterattacking. It's not right. We don't have the men. We can't. And one, But one, you also can't leave. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the majors leaps up and shouts, if we're not counterattacking, we've lost Crete. We've lost it. He was so angry because he knew we needed to do this now mm. or we'd never get it back. And that's Crete done. But there was no counterattack. So the vital decision was taken to withdraw from the airfield. So off they went. And what's interesting is the major that was on the, on the ground, his name was Inglis, he went and met with um, the Germans after the war. This is a long time afterwards. And he met mm. with the, one of the, the generals that was in the invasion of Crete. And yeah. he asked them, he said, what would have happened if I'd been permitted to counterattack you that afternoon? And the Germans said, if you'd done so, we wouldn't have been able to hold Crete because... We we just didn't have the men at that time. Yeah, and we were amazed that there was no counterattack. We yeah, were, we were expecting it all day, and yeah. it never happened. Yeah, and we were able to get established. Score. So it just seems like such a wasted opportunity. There was a chance to kind of push them back off the airfield. There must be so much of that in war, though, yeah. where you don't fully know the hand you I'm know, pretty held sure it, by the opponent. I'm pretty and, sure it happened in Gallipoli as well. There was a chance yeah. to hold the high ground, but they hesitated, and then they never got it back. Yeah. So. The Germans had the airfield. The next day, the 21st of May, the, the Germans were just massing reinforcements. Apparently the planes landing like every three minutes, dropping Germans off. Yeah. And uh, suddenly HQ realised, we need to get that airfield back. Oh. <laughs> you know, oh, we've kind of That's dropped... Brilliant we've dropped, plan. We've dropped the ball there. We must uh, recapture Malem. So they decided, right, we're going to do a nighttime counterattack. <laughs> Upham is like, he's yeah, into that. He, he loves that. <laughs> Between, like, vomiting and yeah. shitting himself. Yeah. So anyway, they decided, tonight's the night. We're going to go in the dark because we'll get slaughtered during the day. Wait till it's dark and we'll go. So he had a forward platoon. They they had to kind of go through 3,000 yards unsupported um, to, to recapture this thing. But they had to wait uh, for these Australian trucks to come and support. Classic. So they're like, as soon as it gets dark, we'll go. These Australian ju- trucks are going to join us and we'll start the thing. Unfortunately, the trucks were delayed because they got bombed, and they didn't get there till three thirty. So suddenly they've the only morning. got light. Yeah, right. Suddenly they've only got three hours of darkness left before it starts getting light. Yep. 
as opposed to like seven or eight. So they started and at 3.30 and they were off. C Company was in there, D Company and the Māori Battalion were there as well. And they were all just kind of picking their way over these 3,000 yards to get back to this airfield. But there was Germans all the way on the way. The New Zealanders surged ahead, but the Germans had spread themselves right through. Upham's platoon was making steady progress across the fields. And then suddenly, you know, machine gun fire coming directly at them, whizzing above them. Upham you know, yells at his boys, get down, get down. And they all hurl themselves to the, to the ground. Once again, like, Upham's just crawling through his men, telling them, you know, this is what's happening. There's a machine gun over here. Give me some covering fire, and I'm going to flank him. It's his favourite move. It. Yeah. So, you know, he, the, the boys are just covering him and distracting the machine gunner. Meanwhile, he, he's keeping real low so they can't see him. Crawling around the side, and what does he do? Pulls out a couple of grenades. His favourite. Weapon of choice. He loosens the pin, throws the grenade straight in there. Okay, there's a couple of grenades go in there. And the boys, once again, just hear these explosions, bam, bam, bam. And then silence. There'd been eight paratroopers in there, seven with submachine gunners and one even bigger gun, and they were all dead. Yeah. Charles Upham and his grenades. Well, because he practiced. Again, in the book, there was a bit about him practicing with grenades over and over and over again just to perfect the amount of time he could pull the pin. Yeah, he knew exactly, exactly when, to, when throw to throw it. it. So yeah. it couldn't be picked up and chucked back. Oh, he loved a grenade, eh? Yeah. And then, you know, he just killed eight dudes, fully machine gun armed, and suddenly... They had machine gun arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like... Duh, 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 duh. I knew about the Nazi experiments. So I didn't know yeah, they were yeah, that they... successful. As soon as that had happened, suddenly more machine guns coming in. There was uh, one in a, coming from a window of a house, and there was another one coming from a shed. Once again, up him, just running. Cover me. <laughs> yeah, his favourite move. Um, so they were, the covering fire was crucial because they were just giving a rain of bullets on the machine guns mm. to try and stop them while, while Upham ran ran around the side so he could get close enough, pulls out his grenade, smashes it through the window, takes out the guy through the window, puts another one in the shed. All is silent. Half a dozen Germans come tumbling out of the house with their hands up to surrender. This is all just... <laughs> one guy. Upham and his grenade. Plus suppressing fire. It sounds like something out of a movie. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen Hot Shots Part 2. I have not. Anyway, Charlie Sheen, he's in there, and there's this great scene where they're just kind of mocking Rambo, and he's just shooting everyone with his machine gun, he's just running around, and all the enemies just shooting, and the bullets are flying over, and he runs out of ammunition, and he picks up some bullets out of a crate and just throws them and kills people. <laughs> it's an absolute comedy, but and so unrealistic, but in some ways, this story just yeah. reminds me of Charles Upham, just unbelievable with the grenades. Yeah. It's funny, because you talk about him just... Because he didn't do anything dramatic. He just crawled around the side and then threw grenades at people. Yeah. Like, it's it's very basic as a tactic, but it's like no one else had the balls, like the bravery to be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people were, like, looking at him as if he was possessed. Mm. He was just, like, swearing all the time. He was just – he had this burning eyes. That's so, me when I get going in the classroom. And almost like this hatred. Is yeah, that's you? it. Totally. That's <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. It's self-loathing more than anything. Yeah. The funny thing is he did this one more time. Like three times <laughs> they, his crew, his platoon found a machine gun. They went down to covering fire. He went around the side. I don't know how many grenades he had on them. Yeah. But he certainly used them pretty effectively. Yeah. Threw another one, like a baseball player, through the window, destroyed. Yeah. So there's so many stories of just up him, just taking it on himself to, to yeah. flank these... Because, like, his desire is to protect his men. Mm. And the only way to do that was to, like, neutralize these machine guns before anything else happens. Yeah. It's important to note, too, because you are talking about how crazy the stories are. But most of this is drawn from that book, Mark of the Lion. Yeah. And we were chatting before. All of those stories come from multiple people, and they've all been sort of cross-checked. And, you know, like, there's a lot of validity, as much as we can get from human memory, about these stories. So as fantastical as they are, it seems... Legit. Yeah. 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 There's another story. This time he didn't use grenades, but there was these two Germans that were standing just about five yards five yards ahead waiting for the New Zealanders to come out into the open. They're obviously hiding behind some, some cover. And Upham kind of moved like lightning behind them with his pistol, mm-hmm. shot both of them. No one, no one in the Kiwis was killed by these two. So it was just 
amazing how he was just so in tune with what, what needed to happen. He'd just make a decision in his mind. Yeah, and, and did it. Yep. No hesitation. He must have thought war was pretty easy. It's like, no, you just go around the side of them. I think he was just in such a zone that he just, mm. like, he, there wasn't heaps of thinking going on. He was just doing stuff. Yeah. And he was so effective at it. All those things that he'd learned on the farm and at training, he had just all the right characteristics to make an amazing soldier. Yeah. So they made it all the way to the airfield. But as they, as they made it there, the sun was about to come up. So the Kiwis had done something astonishing here. They'd, they'd covered like 3,000 yards and got all the way here, but because they started at 3.30 a.m., they'd just run out of darkness. And they realised, you know, if we stay here in the middle of daylight, we, we're just going to get slaughtered because we, yeah. we don't have the means to hold this ground. So they, they started to retreat. They went out to the beach, and uh, they joined the other companies, B Company and D Company, and they realised, you know, this position's hopeless. We need to go back, and we need to reinforce. At this stage, the Germans were starting to fire mortars and machine guns, and uh, so there was explosions happening everywhere. At the beach. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, twice during the morning, this guy called Upperman, another soldier called Kirk, they would run around and rescue some of the boys that were wounded. They were often like using a door as a stretcher yeah. to carry them out. So he did this twice, bring back injured men. Amid a hail of mortar rounds. Yeah. And... yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So over the next two days, his platoon occupied a really exposed position on the forward slopes that was continuously under fire. So they kind of made it as far as they could, and then they were just said, you need to hold this ground. But because they'd had no, no time to set it up, it was in a really exposed position. So there was heavy fire from the mortars. And there's a quote here from Colonel Burroughs who said, the line was as thin as tissue paper. <laughs> I like that because yep. it's pretty thin. That's quite thin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this mortar fire is happening all the time. And then there's up and feels something in his shoulder. And he's, he looks around and he, he feels it there and it's a mortar fragment. And up and being like, He's not really into making a big deal about anything. himself or anything. Yeah, he says to his uh, he says to his mate Dave, "Here, can you dig this out?" And he gives him a gives him a knife. Of course, his mate's called Dave too. <laughs> Just gives him his pocket knife, and this is David Kirk, and he says, "Dig it out with a pocket knife? Hell, I'm not a surgeon. Get back to the RAP, which I assume is the you know the medical tent." And. Uh, Upham's not having a bar of that. <laughs> He's like, I haven't got time for that. I've got a platoon to look after. Yeah. He gives him the knife again. And Kirk's just kind of like, doesn't want to, but mm. he's kind of, okay, digging in there with a the pocket knife, oh. apologizing as he does it because oh. he knew it would be causing a ton of pain. And he gets out one piece of metal, but yeah. he can't get the other, other bit in. So he said, look, I've got one piece out, but I can't get the other bit. So you're going to have to go, go back and, and get it done properly. And Upham's furious because he... <laughs> You'd have to leave his men. So he retreats back to the line and gets it all all fixed up. So now Upham's still got dysentery, his arm's in a sling. <laughs> He's got this wound on his shoulder. Yeah. And then he also receives a second wound where a machine, machine gun burst, kind of a bullet just ends up hitting him in his right leg, right down by his ankle. So he has to balance him out. Yeah, so he's got all sorts of issues. You'd think that would slow him down a bit, but... But no, he was in this state of exhilarated defiance. He was like in the zone. Yep. And he had this passion for looking after his men. He just wanted to make sure that they were they were doing the right thing and they were at least had a chance. Yep. So he, he always wanted to be with them. There was a soldier that said he was always telling us to keep down, keep down. But while he was doing that, he was just walking around, standing yeah. up. <laughs> Bullets just fire, flying over his head. Yep. Yeah. The times were so tough in Crete that at one stage, which is interesting, Inglis, who was in charge, was sending forward the Kiwi Concert Party and the 4th Brigade Band to act as riflemen. <laughs> wow. So they get up there and someone turns to them and is, and is like, what, what, what are our orders? What do we do? And they're just like, I don't know. I'm a trumpet player. Yeah. <laughs> so I, that just, I just find that so funny. That's it's like, crazy. How is the band? How is the band in there? So now... There was a realisation that Crete was lost, so all the Kiwis and all the forces are starting to make their way back for another evacuation, a bit like Greece, which mm. is 
a bit ironic because you could kind of see this happening. But as they're going back, uh, Upham sees a couple of Germans and they're moving towards him through these trees, right? And just remember, he's he's got one arm in a sling. He's managed to get his rifle back. Yeah, He's got a few wounds. Probably limping. And um, he's kind of trying to retreat to get away from these two Germans. And and the rest of his crew see, see Upham fall over just as the Germans are firing at him. And they think, oh, he's been hit. He's, he's dead. Mm. But fortunately, Upham fell over because he tripped on a tree root. So he, he falls to the ground. And just as he falls to the ground, he sees this tree that's got this perfect notch in it. Oh, yeah. And he's just like, perfect. I can't actually hold a gun yeah. with two hands because one of them's in a sling. But if I put my gun in this kind of fork, I should be able to fire it effectively. Yeah. So he gets behind it. These two Germans think, you know, they've just shot shot this Kiwi. They're going to run over and get it. He gets his gun get in it. there. <laughs> get him. He gets his gun in the, in the fork and he's like, okay, how am I going to do this? I've got one arm to kind of fire the trigger, pull the bolt back, yeah. reload and shoot the second German. Yeah. The Germans come over. He shoots the first one, gets his one arm. The second one realizes where he is and he's not dead. So he's like sprinting towards him, reloads, shoots the next one. That second German falls on his rifle. That's how close he got. So that's just amazing. Another one of those stories. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He's killed a few by this point. Yeah, so he's done that as well as everything else. And now they had to do a 40-mile march with his crew to the the place where they could get evacuated. As they're doing this march, they're kind of moving as quickly as possible as the Germans chase them down. It's a bit like, you know, Dunkirk. You've got to get off here before the Germans catch us. And they come to this ravine, and the Germans catch up with them in this kind of the road goes down this big ravine with kind of two bluffs on either side. Minotaur at the bottom. And suddenly... The Kiwis are kind of like caught up because they're getting shot at. And Upham gets ordered, you need, to, you need to get rid of these Germans. Get some men up on that cliff so you can shoot down on them. So he takes a bunch of his crew. Just remember, he's still got dysentery. Yeah. He's still got one arm. He's leaving a trail behind him. And he takes a bunch of people up this cliff, which is ridiculously steep, right? So, And the men are like, why are we doing this? This is so hard. They're all already exhausted. And Upham's just charging up here. I picture him walking like up this vertical cliff. <laughs> For like two hours, they walk, they walk, they walk until they're at this high point, and finally they can shoot down on the Germans. And they start doing that, and um, it takes all the pressure off uh, off the men. And uh, I've got a stat for you here. Go on. Of the fifty Germans who came down the ravine, Upham and his crew killed twenty-two of them. And then the rest were able to be mopped up by the other troops. Wow. So those guys going up on top of the ravine yep. was crucial to them being able to defend it. Yeah. So they managed to get down to the boats. Upham was forced to leave early because he was pretty injured. Yeah. And his higher-ups kind of knew, had started hearing stories about him, and they were thinking, hey, this guy needs to be rewarded That's for cool. this. We need to get him out of here before he's killed. Yeah. And he wasn't happy about that because he had to leave some of his men on the island because he was on one of the early boats. Yeah. But he was forced on a boat and uh, and he got off. So there's a bunch of reports that came out of Upham's action. Here's one report from the captain of the 20th. He said, He showed a total disregard for his safety, very seldom using cover and always moving his round, round his platoon, cheering his men on. Coolness, leadership and unremitting attention to his men. So... Obviously, everyone saw Upham and what he was doing and just couldn't believe. Couldn't the believe. perfect soldier. The perfect leader. Yeah. So finally, he got back to like Syria and Egypt and they were able to, they were able to relax. They were suddenly away from all the, the enemy. But Upham was completely worn out. He spent a lot of time in hospital recovering from his injuries. He also had a lot of sinus trouble. Once he got out of hospital, he went back into training, straight back into it. Yeah. And during that time, on the BBC, there was an announcement. The Victoria Cross has been awarded to an officer of the New Zealand Military Forces, Second Lieutenant Charles Upham, for gallantry in Crete. When he heard this, he was puzzled. And he, he actually was a little bit defensive. Yeah. Because the one thing he said was, you know, it's meant for the men. Yeah. Why do I deserve this? Yeah. It, was, it was my men. It wasn't me. So... Like an individual award in team sports. Yeah, yeah. He immediately knew his life would be different because 
he was going to be constantly trying to escape this this celebrity, this position of fame. Yep. And he hated the fact that he was being awarded a Victoria Cross for something that was just his duty. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he didn't like he didn't like the idea. He wasn't happy. This is the the highest honor you can get in yeah. the military. Yeah. And he wasn't stoked about it. He, he was, was also so, No, nah, go on. He was also very shy. Yeah. Shy, self-effacing, like yeah. super modest. It's amazing we've got any record of his account because for so long he didn't want any of this to be known by anyone. Oh, yeah, he was embarrassed by it, yeah. which is such a shame. The uh, Once kind of everyone in New Zealand heard about this, the New Zealand Mobile Broadcasting Unit came over to see him with like a, a journalist. Yep. And uh, he wanted to talk about the, the New Zealander that's received the new Victoria Cross. He was... Upham was not keen. He basically disappeared. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't having a bar of it. But eventually, you know, people talked to him and said, look, if you talk to the journalist, you can at least talk about how good your men were. Yeah. You can explain this award is for your men, just not, not just me. And the whole circus around it is for general morale. Like it boosts the army's morale and the allied forces. They're like, whoa, we've got a legend. Yeah. Like we can fight better. So Upham reluctantly was recorded. Um, he had to have three takes because the first two he just was constantly swearing. swearing. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty much his whole broadcast, he was talking about his men. He never talked about himself, and yeah. he especially talked about those that died, and he mentioned them all by name, yeah. which I think is pretty amazing. He also has this funny quote. He says, I would like the New Zealand government to know that it is impossible to send over too much New Zealand tobacco <laughs> to the troops. It is very much appreciated here. Kia ora. <laughs> I think that's, that's great. That's brilliant. Yeah. Kippenberg, who you've talked about, he said the following I am speaking as Upham's commanding officer. Upham is the first New Zealand officer to get the award of the Victoria Cross, probably since the Musket Wars. He is very distressed, genuinely distressed, he has been singled out for this award. He has the idea that a great many men who served well and gallantly deserve to get it instead of himself. So you can just see he didn't like it. But yep. once he got the ribbon, um, the funny thing is he didn't even wear it. He just left it sitting in the dirt and his, with his other gear. And uh, until he was kind of forced to put it on by his, by his colleagues. So that's the story of Charles Upham. Part of it. First Victoria Cross. Yeah, his first one. There's a little bit more to go. So we'll continue with this story in the second episode of Charles Upham yep. on uh, Pacific Legends Unleashed. <laughs>